And welcome to the HTML All the Things Podcast, episode 91, Top 10 Web Design Tips. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support us, there's a couple of ways that you could do that. You can review us on that Apple podcast or on the podcast platform that you're listening to this on. You also you can also check us out on that Patreon. There's only a couple of tiers, but the $3 tier will give you a shout out and we will put a link to your website in our show notes. And probably the most important one is just to share us, tell everyone that we're here and we are ready to be listened to. And if you or your friends that you hopefully shared this with are ready to join, you can come and join up to our Discord server. Discord server has hundreds of people in there all talking about their projects, their struggles, their successes, and all the rest of it all around programming and some off-topic stuff as well. But as we always begin, Mike, Weekly Pain Point, please take it away. All right. Uh, so this week's weekly pain point is coffee. Um, it's one of those things that I've taken to, I've decided to like do differently ever since this, you know, pandemic started. I was thinking, okay, what, you know, daily routine, let's switch it up a little bit. And I've decided to try different methods of coffee. Uh, and the one I'm doing right now is French press. But while going through all this process, I've realized that there's a massive war online going on between people like, quote-unquote coffee experts uh people saying like this method is garbage this method is good oh no but this method is garbage people just fighting over what coffee is best um like people saying like coffee machines are garbage for whatever reason it just it seems a little bit over the top for me i I think with any as soon as you delve even like a couple of steps into any hobby or any like thing that you can think of online like i was mentioning before um if you're into drinking water, like there is a whole thing with drinking water where people kind of schedule it out during the day and make sure that their water is a certain temperature. And I don't know, it's, you know, like drink some water. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not that complicated, but, uh, people tend to overcomplicate things when they get really into it. And that's what's happening right now with my coffee hobby. Um, but I found like kind of like an intermediary thing where I can still enjoy what I <laughs> like listening to people talking about coffee and drinking what like what I make. So I I found the middle ground. So it's all right. But it's kind of crazy that it's just so great, like so intense, like the battle of coffee is so intense right now. Um, but that's about it for me. What about you, Matt? Well, I'd actually like to, to give you a little feedback on that because I'm a bit of a coffee aficionado myself, but I'm more of a. I'm more of like a let's have a good but simple coffee uh, sort of aficionado, if you will. So I don't use a French press. I still use – well, I use a, a Nespresso Virtuo machine. Um, so it has like a barcode on there. You still have the little pods. Recyclable pods, by the way. You ship them back in a red bag and then they, they do what they need to do to them. But um, look up look up details on that. I don't know. I don't know all the details on that. But anyway – um, I don't want to get attacked by environmentalists now because you're set, uh, now that you've mentioned passions online, I don't want people yeah. to be like, but it's not a hundred percent recyclable. And it's like, I didn't know. I just shipped it back in the red bag as I was told, please. But I don't know. They're like little, uh, pods and they have like a barcode on them and they brew different coffee b- things and you get to choose, you know, what coffees you want from a big selection and there's timed exclusive ones and stuff like that based on the season. So that's about as far as my coffee aficionado goes, but I will say, a lot, a lot of people that I know use a French press now, because it is pretty quick. Um, it's not good for bulk coffee. Like, bulk coffee is definitely your typical percolation machine, and I understand why people don't like a percolation machine. Uh, 
First off, you get variable heat. So if you talk about your typical cheap percolation machine, you dump your water in at room temp or cold, whatever, usually room temp into the back. And then it goes, you know, gets pumped up a pipe. And at some point in the process, it gets heated and then it gets dripped over coffee inside, like on top of a filter. So there's, there's too many variables there, which I believe is what a lot of the people dislike. So the amount of coffee is a variable. And even if you're precise, the piling of the coffee is a variable. The position of the coffee in the filter is technically like change. The dripping of the coffee on that pile can create like a random variance in your brew. And in addition, if you're using a particularly cheap coffee maker, which is typically mostly all plastic, the lid can pop up, which lets heat escape and changes the brew that way. And then also you're heating it from the bottom. So some people will say that the bottom is getting cooked and the rest is not, and there's nothing spinning the coffee. Yeah, so, you're pretty much describing my pain point. Yeah, like that. This is what I. <laughs> this is what I delved into as soon as I st- I stepped in. It's like, okay, so you're using a French press now. What kind of French press is it? Does it have this? Does it have that? Okay, well, you got to pour the coffee in as soon as it finishes boiling. If you wait three seconds longer, then it's garbage. Like it's absolute trash. You might as well pour it down the toilet. Then when you pour it in, you got to put the put the press in not all the way, but only like a quarter of the way in, so that it sits on the top. And then you got to wait five minutes for the coffee to drip down to the very bottom and then settle. And then you got to slowly pour it. If you pour it fast, you're you're a piece of shit you're garbage like go go home never talk to me again like that those are the kinds of like interactions that i've been having on the coffee uh on the coffee front so yeah what you just described is exactly how people break down every aspect of every coffee making process like that's 100 percent right so that that was really good (laughs) i will i will say that they are semi-correct although it's one of these it's one of these art forms if you will if you can call it an art form where uh, the variance in the full method, like French press to percolation, for example, is like a noticeable difference even to the standard consumer, I would say. But what they're doing with like, if ever you're using a percolator and you're trying to like, you know, keep the amount of coffee right and keep the, keep the piling of the coffee correct in the filter and stuff like that. Those little tweaks within a method are typically not consumer like detectable and so it's only for those that are picky which is fine like you're kind of like a foodie but for coffee but yep it's just a matter of if you gave me both i wouldn't be able to tell you um i will tell you that if you drink instant coffee you're doing it incorrect and don't do that because for some reason and people have disagreed with me for some reason you know how like if you're eating food with like a metal spoon if that metal, I don't know what happens to that metal spoon, but you get that little bit of that metal taste in there. That's what instant coffee tastes like to me. It tastes like for somehow you like left a spoon in the grinds and the spoon like seeped its metalness. You're talking metal about acidity, taste. like it tastes really acidic? Acidic or like it tastes like that metal, like, yeah, like metallic. Metallic taste, like, ugh. Have you like, tr- yeah. no, I'm not defending instant coffee, but have you tried, like, you've tried many different coffees and all of them have that. Oh, God, that, no. Uh, Okay, so you've tried uh, only a few. It'll get like it'll be instant coffee if I'm at someone's house and they're like, "You want a coffee?" and they just have it. Like I'm not a super big aficionado. I will absolutely just drink if you give me any coffee at all. Pretty much, I'll drink it. I've never like refused or like I'll have a second cup of that instant stuff. But it is done incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I don't really like instant coffee that much. I will drink it every once in a while. But my dad, for some reason, just only drinks instant coffee. He hates 
any roasted bean coffee like he pretty much anything that actually resembles coffee that's disgusting to him he probably likes that metallic maybe yeah i don't know but he only likes one type of instant coffee which is i think nescafe um Hmm. it's it's to be fair it's probably the best one i've had as well right but compared to like good coffee uh it's not like you can't compare it so i don't know it, coffee is a coffee is a topic like it's a big one like we could do a whole podcast on that that's it uh, we're committing to a whole podcast on coffee that's our web news it's like now coffee not news. even web news whole podcast we're breaking down coffee for everyone i think it's an important topic right now everyone's at home we gotta do we gotta <laughs> learn how to make coffee top 10 so, coffee design tips <laughs> <laughs> on the fly too like we didn't do our yeah. research we just like that's it just on the fly yep um but my weekly pain point here is uh, google podcasts uh so I have a lot of the Google Home stuff uh, recently renamed to Google Nest, which means it's the smart home speakers and the little smart uh, screens and smart displays, whatever they call them. They're, you know, they're all over the house. I have them controlling the lights and all the rest of it. Uh, So because of that, I have, you know, dabbled with that, those devices using those smart speakers using and controlling my podcast. Now, those podcasts come from Google Podcasts. So I've recently liked it. It's okay. And um, I used to just, you know, sort of use it for convenience sake. I'd be like, play this podcast and it would do it. But my main podcast app was always CastBox. Well, CastBox started adding uh, months ago full screen ads. And they also have like a premium subscription, which is totally optional to be totally clear. Like they don't actually give you that much other than I believe it's just ad free and a few other things. You can subscribe to more podcasts or something. Um, But... Like it, it's a good app for discovery. I'll say that. Uh, it's a fully featured app. It's just I just got kind of sick of it to be honest. Um, and I also started having trouble with. I would cast. So what would happen is I would cast. From my phone to my Google like speakers sometimes if I wanted to like listen from the place I left off in my cast box. I was walking around town or something. Listen to half of an episode. Come home. Go to cast to the spe- smart speaker. Uh, I would then cast. It would open up like two of those things. And so it would, it would play on CastBox. All of a sudden, CastBox would lose the connection. And CastBox would just continue to, like, the timer would keep going, but the CastBox would think would not be playing the episode. But the Google speaker, because I guess it's getting the stream directly or however that works, is streaming the thing. Now, when it's done, it doesn't know where to go. Uh, and then CastBox doesn't detect that I finished the episode. And it's like a whole thing. So I said, okay, I'm going to switch to Google Podcasts. Google Podcast is very strimmed down, very stripped down and everything, and I never switched to it because of the lack of a desktop version. There's now a web version. Okay, that's great, because I do like the desktop version. Now I got a problem. So I go into Google Podcasts, I go in there, I add a bunch of podcasts, specific episodes, to be clear, into a playlist. And I'm like, I want to listen to this episode, this one, this one, this one, because I listen to Joe Rogan, but I don't really want to listen to every guest, because some people I just don't care. Straight up. So, I go in and I choose these episodes I think will be interesting. And... I add a giant, the giant bomb. That's a, uh, that's a gaming, uh, like media, you know, conglomerate or whatever you want to call it. Like they do gaming news and stuff. And they have a, a podcast called the, G- the, the giant bomb cast, I believe. So I, I want to listen to their Fallout 76 episode or the one that's named NPCs are here. I add that to my playlist. So here's where my problem comes in. I needed to, cause I'm, a, I'm in podcasts. I needed to proof one of my podcasts. So I click on one of, because like the giant bomb cast is queued. It's the next episode. It's technically in the player. So if I press play in my, in my playlist, it's going to start. And I've listened to 20% of it at this point. So there's some history there. 
So I go and I'm like, oh, I got to proofread one of my podcasts. I click on my podcast. I start listening to it. I then go like, okay, you know, I'm, you know, whatever part's fixed. I then go back to the, my, my playlist. Now Giant Bombcast is gone. No longer in my playlist because I've played something over top of it. And now it's in my history and I can go back and I have to like find it. And it will acknowledge that I've acknowledged the proper history. It doesn't mark it as, as played. It does say, you know, you listen to 20% of this. But whatever is on the tip of your playlist, whatever's current in your playlist, just gets right off the chopping block. Uh, another weird thing. Go into Google Podcasts on the on the desktop. There's no There's no playlist. Uh, I know it's in its infancy. There is no playlist. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, fine. Uh, <clears throat> let me select, <clears throat> excuse me, let me select the episode that I knew, which I shouldn't be the one tracking this. The app should be, but I knew what episode I was willing to listen to. So I go and I click on it and it shows me, it says, hey, this is, you know, X amount played. So I'm like, okay, great. So I click on that and I start pl- listening to the episode. Uh, I don't finish it. I come back today and I go to click on that episode and it just has no history. Like it just says like play episode doesn't say like where I was at. And I was like, what the hell? So I go and I check my, my phone and my phone has the proper history. It didn't like, it's not like I accidentally left it running or something. I thought maybe that's what had happened. So I don't know what's going on. Also, there's a weird UX problem. And like, I haven't been using this for very long, so maybe I'm incorrect and correct me if I, if I am wrong. But I remember in Google Podcasts that if I say listen to one hour of a two-hour episode, and then I just stopped. It wasn't in my playlist or anything. I just stopped listening to it. I leave. I then come back to that episode at some point later. In the list of episodes in which it's in, there'll be like a play button. And it'll say, or used to say like one hour left or something along those lines. Um, That doesn't work on desktop. That's not on desktop. And when I, I, you have to click into that episode specific page. And then there's like a little play bar that shows you that. What a weird hole in, like, what a weird two holes, like the playlist thing and now this. And then the playlist functionality is just weird uh, across everything. Like, I just want to proofread this one podcast. I want to listen to this one little piece. Someone shared me something. Oh, great. It knocked my my playlist out. And I'm a person who queues up five, six, no, more more podcasts. And then I just say, like, you know, play. Another hole, too. Last hole, too, because I know this is a pain point, not like 40 points. If At least I haven't figured out which one. I can't tell the Google speakers via my voice to play my my playlist. I have to say, in this case, play the giant bombcast, and then it says, "Oh, you had a you you had history with this. I'm going to continue where you left off," which is really nice. But why can't I say play my playlist? Because to me, and maybe there's a way to add more playlists, but right now I only have one playlist, and I think there's only functionality to have one playlist, which I'm fine with, and. Why can't I just say Google play my, my playlist? And when I did do that, by the way, it tried to play some random vampire jams or something podcast. And it kept doing that over and over again. And now that's in my history. So that's really great. So I've tried Google podcast, Castbox. I've tried a little bit of Apple podcast, which is not an Android. So that's out the window. I've tried, uh, I've tried, um, I was going to say I tried Podbean, but I actually didn't. So maybe I should try that next. But I haven't tried Podbean. Uh, I've tried a bunch of podcast apps is what I'm trying to get at here. I've tried the Pod Republic or something like that years ago. And then you had to pay to sync. Like, it, what a, like, I had Podcast Addict for years, which is like really if you like to tune it. And I did love that. But it's at the point where it's like, I don't want to tune it. I just want to like select, I want like 
this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, press play. Like, that's what I want out of my podcast now. I don't want to sit there and, like, screw around with, like, whether Bluetooth should be, you know, whatever. Like, Podcast Addict has, like, hundreds of options, if I remember correctly. Hundreds of options. Tons of options. So, whatever. So, anyway, that's my two cents on Google Podcasts. That's what I'm experiencing right now. A little bit of a weird UX problem. And brief preview into next week. I found out that Outlook for Android, the app, the official app, only allows you to compose email in plain text. No underline, no bold, no italic, no change in the color of the text, which is used a lot in the IT field. None of that. Just pure 100% plain text. So, don't mean to be dramatic, but my ecosystem's all screwed up, and uh, I think we did, I think that might end up being our web news next week because Mike and I had had a discussion about that earlier, off the sh- off the mic. But uh, Mike, I'm gonna let you take it away before I keep keep jabbering on here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think next week for sure we'll have a discussion on both those topics. Actually, I don't want to because I have a lot to say about the podcast topic uh, as well. I use Pocket Casts, uh, which has been pretty good, but there's some issues, and there's a lot of other issues with the podcast demographic right now that could be coming up it could be really really annoying but we'll discuss it next week so stay tuned for that uh i'm gonna get right into our main topic here which is the top 10 web design tips um and this will be aimed at web developers that don't have too too much skill with design so people that are more comfortable coding than they do with like you know firing up adobe and starting to do designs and stuff like that so i want to i want to target that audience what i've done is i've kind of went through a bunch of different lists. I've done a bunch of like bunch and bunch of reading over the last few weeks. Um, I've done some, my, some of my own testing. I've done a lot of like a combination of many, many things to come up with this list. And it's also a list that kind of focuses on stuff that I can describe as best I possibly can over, you know, talking rather than having to show, because there's a lot of really cool tips that I'll probably link in the show notes uh, that you can take a look for yourself that are just much easier to to explain through text and visuals rather than through a podcast setting. But I do want to go through this list, uh, try to help everyone as much as I possibly can, especially the people that don't have that much design experience and are kind of afraid of it. I think a lot of people that are really strong with programming are a little bit afraid of going into the design world. So then when they create their own products or uh, decide to take on a design project as well as a a uh, project that requires coding, they are hesitant to put their best foot forward on the design front because they're like, well, like I suck at it, so it's probably going to be bad anyway. So I'll just do like the bare minimum and that's it. Um, so I want to just say that there are many things that you can do that don't require you to have an art art degree, that don't require you to be spatially aware, like aware of everything, like that are just very basic aspects of the design process that will make your site look more professional. So this list will be a combination of things to avoid as well as things to do. Uh, both will help you probably make make your site look like much cleaner uh, and much more modern than if you were to just go from, you know, zero advice. Uh, so I'm going to jump right in here. First topic here is don't use too many colors. I think the big thing with this one is it's the most obvious one when you go to someone's site and it just pops at you for being... Uh, bad so when i go to someone's site and they have like 15 different colors and they're all extreme like you know contrast colors like really bright green really bright red really like really dark black and then you know when you you have like 
15 different colors on a site immediately pops at you for being unprofessional. It immediately pops at you for being uh, not modern, not designed well, and not really usable because it hurts your eyes. Like as soon as something hurts your eyes, that's your that's your key that you've gone too far or you've done something wrong because what you want to do is lead people to your site and keep them there for as long as possible or as long as they need at least. Maybe not as long as possible through like a virus. Don't do that. But uh, keep them there for to the point where they've gotten the value that you're trying to give them out of it and then they can leave. So that's a that's a pretty big one i would say and it's it might seem obvious but when you're going through your design process and then you're you're trying to pick like different colors try to keep it so that the colors are consistent shades between each other and they don't have to be you know it doesn't have to be like light green dark green dark you know lighter green darker green it doesn't have to be all the same color shades but a big tip is to keep them in the same pastel uh region so in the same color spectrum and I'm really bad at this. So what I use is a color picker, which it'll, it'll generate an entire color palette for a website. So what you can do is go to, uh, and I'm going to have links for all of this in the second segment, which is web design resources. Uh, go to a color palette generator called coolers, coolers.co. So it's C-O-O-L-O-R-S dot C-O. And in that, it gives you so many different combinations that you can think of. And you can kind of pick your main colors that you want. So if you, you know, if you like black and red, you can pick black and red and then ask it to generate the rest of the colors for your site for you that are based on those two colors or work well with them. So complementary to them. Uh, so there's a lot that can be said about colors. But I think, again, the main points are don't use too many. Like don't just use random colors that you like. Uh, make sure that they fit together and also try to use one of those color generators if you have trouble picking the colors. So second top second point here, uh, number two, don't use a million different design accents. And again, this kind of leads from the first point. When you come to a web page and you see, let's say, a block of text, and in that block of text, you have every third word bold, every second word underlined, every you know fourth line italic, whatever it's too much. You're throwing too much at the user. There's too much that you're trying to draw their attention to because the point of design accents in in text or in anything else is to draw attention to it in different ways. So if it's underlined, that usually means, you know, look at this, maybe click on it as well, because underlined usually means there's an action associated with it. If it's bold, it means that this kind of summarizes or is the main point of this text. If it's italic, it means it's a complementary statement to the text that's in there. So Use them as you need them, but don't overload the user with, you know, not all of your content needs to be, you know, needs to dry, drive the user's attention. That's really important because if you have too much, if you're, if the user's going left, right, down, up, right when they get to the page, then they're going to get fatigued and they're not going to stay on the page. They're not going to know where to click. They're not going to know what the main point of the application of the website is. And that's really, really key when you're trying to convert someone. Like if, if the point of your site is to sell something or to convert someone to sign up to your newsletter or something, what you need to do is you need to make sure that everything that you're driving on the site, everything that the site has is pointed towards getting them to do that action, right? So make sure that, you know, that there's going to be a lot of, st- most of my points, most of my tips here are designed to generate, like get the user to convert, 
because that's really what the point, usually the point of websites. The conversion can be as simple as get them to the contact us page so that they can contact us and we can start that conversation. That, that's a typical business card website conversion point, right? Like if you're just making something really simple for our, like our just beginner users, that's what you're trying to focus on. You're trying to focus on getting, you know, their page getting on Google. And then when the person comes to the page, you need to make sure that they can contact the person that they're trying, that they need to contact. Because that's really all the all they need to do. So make sure that you emphasize that and don't throw a million things. So if, again, back to the point, don't use a million different design accents. If it is just a business card page and you have, you know, a whole blurb of text or maybe you have like 15 different icons with little blurbs of text underneath them. And then, you know, half the icons are underlined and half the icons are italic or whatever. Uh, or like the text is italic. The icons are bold. The icons are different colors you're confusing the user. Like the user doesn't know what the heck is going on. Like why, why, why is this red? Why is this green? Why is this blue? Like it doesn't make any sense. Stick to a simple design when you're, especially when you're starting out as simple as possible, because it's really difficult. As soon as you add elements that are more complicated, it's really difficult to bring the design together to make it work for you. So I always stick to something extremely simple. I'd like to jump in here too. Um, I wanted to wait for the, the, the first and the second, point to be over because I think this point that I'm about to make applies to these two especially but a bunch of the other points as well and that is that you know using too many colors or using a million different design accents and stuff like that to me uh, you know those are those are valid points but when you're going through and actually just building the site as a dev uh, and you're just literally hitting it and where you just want to get the content done and on the screen essentially from concept to screen I would say just literally splat it on the screen because iterate like iterative design or iterating on what you're doing doesn't have to happen post uh like going live or post production if you will. So a lot of these things for example I've written a bunch of documentation recently for a project and a bunch of the stuff was just you know weird headings and stuff like that but if I had waited to actually write that stuff down like write the actual guide down it would have taken me a lot longer to get it done. So what I mean by that is, it's if, if I go and I, I need, there's three sections of a, of a piece of documentation I'm writing, and I'm not sure about the heading, and I'm not sure about my verbiage, and I'm not sure about whether I should have these colorful links in there and that type of thing from a design aspect. And I, I hesitate, and I don't actually write anything past the first of the three sections I want. The actual writing of that content, for example, and the actual getting things to work, is the hard part. It is like the bulk of the project. And I can very quickly in most cases come back the next day or the next week or whatever I, whenever I can and tweak what I've done. And those tweaks don't all have to be done at once and they can happen iteratively as you work on other pieces of the project and it will make those original pages, that documentation in this example, much better. It You don't have to wait until you know for sure like this is the design I want because you will, in almost every single case, iterate on that design that you quote-unquote decided anyway. And it's going to feel a lot better to just get that content out, get that page built, and then come back later and you're like, this looks horrible. This yellow, I can't even read it. But that's exactly it. Now you're just tweaking that yellow, for example. You're not wondering, man, what do I? how do I word this text? Every little bit of work you do on a project is work done, is work complete. Whether it gets completely ripped up and redone is irrelevant because that is an iteration. 
And you would never have come to the conclusion that, that your iteration did without doing that original iteration. So basically my point is to kind of capstone this, I've been using that word a lot, to kind of capstone this is to, you come in and you basically splat everything on the page, you do what you came there for, and then don't be afraid to have it be ugly and have it have like the few typos here and there if it's content, written content, or have the nav bar be strangely aligned because it is much easier to come back and tweak and fix than it is to completely redo or to hold back and then have to think up all the design ideas and then splat them on the page and then not like them anyway. Just get it out there, get it built, get it together, and then iterating is much faster and you'll feel a lot better because you feel like, whoa, this page is done, I just have to tweak it. I I agree. And I uh, to add to that point is uh, just getting it done, just getting it out there on the page will feel like it'll 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 give you that feeling of motivation to be able to completely do it. So if you're if you're stuck on the aspect of just like I want to design this perfectly and you're not a designer let's say like you don't you don't go into Adobe XD and, or you don't go into a, like Adobe Photoshop and design it. Uh you're not one of those people. I'm not. Uh it for me it's much easier to get, you know, in my head or on a piece of paper get a basic structure, very basic and then get something on the screen. 100% will help me every time because Seeing it and then adjusting it through code, it makes it a lot easier for me to to get those design principles that I want out of the page as much as fast as possible. And on Matt's topic of uh, or or Matt's point of sometimes you'll have to rip it out and redo it completely. As the more you do something, the more you get that stuff on the page, the less that stuff will have to be redone. Like let's say you have your you know your first project, yeah, you might have to redo a bunch of sections. That's okay because you're learning. But your tenth project, it's going to be less because you're gonna you're gonna have a structure for your for your code. You're gonna have a, a better idea of how your design principles work. So don't be worried about having to redo something completely when you're just starting out. When it's you know when you're three years into your career and you're doing you know the same exact project over and over again, that's a different conversation. Like you don't want to be redoing it every time. Um, but when you're first starting out, which I think a lot of our audience is, don't worry about having to restructure completely everything because just getting something on the page is a really big accomplishment and will 100% motivate you to continue to work on that project. And and actually with, with that too, I wanted to throw in that one of our first projects that you and I did, Mike, that had user testing or at least in-depth user testing was our uh, extension list by design. And when we shipped that out, in a total beta group, like group of our friends wasn't publicly accessible at all. wasn't even on the group on the Chrome web store. When we shipped that out, it looked completely different than what it does now. And what we allowed to happen was, you know, we were new to the industry in the, in the first place, but what we allowed to happen was have our friends go in and really either complain about some visual stuff or complain about some functionality missing. And what happens is, is when, for example, if the, uh, if someone asks you to say add a, uh, an add new button somewhere, you add an add new button and you might say, whoa, this is too crowded. And those realizations and those things that you like see will make you iterate. You'll be like, whoa, this is too crowded. Maybe I need to do iconography and not have the buttons have full labels, for example. And that's a huge design decision that is driven by feedback. So don't be afraid to send it to somebody and say, hey, you know, give this a check, especially if it's a test group and have them have them tear it apart or have them make decisions that aren't necessarily design decisions. They might be UX decisions that end up in UI 
and UI design iteration like changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that, I'll move on to the next tip here, which is break down content into log- logical blocks. Uh, this will apply visually more than anything. So let's say you have a why choose us section. Usually those sections have like a heading, why choose us. And they have some some way of displaying your skills or some way of displaying your differentiating factors, stuff like that. A big thing is when you're designing that section, make sure that the design elements of the why choose us and your answers are the same. So for instance, if you have a, like a block on your page, let's say it's a long one pager, make sure that the block for why choose us takes up at least like the full page or at least half the page so that they're together. And second of all, the background of both those elements, you know, if the heading's on white, then make sure that the content is on white as well. Or if the heading's on a gray background, make sure that the content is also on a gray background. Don't break them up differently is what I'm trying to say. Like the heading should match the content, if, if that makes sense. Because when a user goes to your page and he's quickly scrolling through and he sees why choose us, and then he quickly sees another essentially what he thinks is another content block with just answers or something like that, they sometimes won't logically make that uh, association between a heading and answers unless they're visually combined, like visually together. And also with professionalism, it doesn't look as clean and as modern as a new a new site that does do these design principles. Again, most of what I've, I've taken from here are from other either lists or other websites or whatever that have, you know, that to me at least look professional. So that's why I'm kind of regurgitating them to you. Next here is create CTAs, click to actions with high contrast compared to the rest of your site. So if you have a click to action that, you know, that generates a PDF for the user to get them, you know, uh, a marketing outline of their required whatever the required sector that they're looking at like if you're if your website is a marketing website and you want to just get the user a marketing tool um what you want to do is you want to make sure that that button that generates that pdf that you want people to click on is differentiated in contrast than the rest of your site like if you have a bunch of you know bunch of pictures and text and all that and then a button that's the same color as your pictures or the same color as your text it's not going to stand out. Whereas if you have a button, like if your website is, you know, blue, like light blue, gray, gray, and gray and some white, and you have a green button, that's going to stand out. Because, well, with that being said, green is also associate, associative with like color accept, color go, and it immediately draws the attention of the user because they know that, oh, green, that means that's like, you know, the next thing I have to do. Um, and you can use these color associations that people already have. Like everyone has these at least three associations, green for accept or go, red for errors or deletions, and yellow for warnings. You can use those to your, to your advantage. If you have something like a, you know, if someone's typing something in and they want to save, that's a green button. If someone's typing something in and they want to just delete everything, that's a red button. If someone's typing something in and they've gone too far or they've gone too many words, that's a yellow warning label or something like that. Those immediately draw the, draw the eye, immediately get the point across, and then the user can read the message or the read the button to know what's actually happening. I got a question about that, actually. Um, yeah. Is click to action different than call to action? Is it something 
I always just called it call to action. I just thought maybe like maybe, maybe it is call to action, and I'm wrong. But let's uh, oh. let's quickly let's quickly is it. I thought maybe you were to referring to something specific. Or click to action. No, I, I don't think I am. I think I'm just. I think call to action is the right. Okay. Is is the right phrasing? Yeah. Okay. I just I was just wrong. Okay, no worries. I I thought you yeah. were referring to something specific because I was going to give some no. feedback on buttons, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't want to like jump it into the wrong point. So, uh, so for call to action CTA, the um, one of the things is to have verbiage in your buttons. So iconography is iconography is generally frowned upon, and generic sort of terms is are generically frowned upon as well. So something like uh, the the classic Windows okay. Whereas that's sort of a computer standard and isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, it is certainly not showing up in as many places. What is sort of happening is okay is becoming when you only acknowledge something. That's what it's sort of becoming. So if, if an error shows up and you, and it's like, this error occurred, do you want to report the error? Or okay is just sort of like, okay, get out of here. Um, better verbiage for that okay, though, for example, would might be dismiss. So you're dismissing the notification. Verbiage allows your user to know what they're doing. So that dismiss is what they're doing. Uh, for example, if they're signing up for an account, you might just say okay at the end of them filling out the form, but you might really want to not say okay. You would want to say sign up or click here to sign up or something like that. Um, shorter verbiage is usually usually uh almost said grinned upon but that's not really but that's usually favorable uh, so something like uh when you're going through a uh, a license agreement or an end user agreement and you scroll to the bottom and you want to agree you literally click the button i agree because that's that's verbiage i agree uh some so not just okay or whatever so also to touch back on iconography iconography is oftentimes not super clear and icons also vary from uh, icons and emoticons, actually, vary from manufacturer to manufacturer. Microsoft has different emoticons than an emoji to uh, to Google, which has different emoticons to Apple, for example. Some are very common. Uh, some are, are perfectly common. Some are very similar. Some are similar-ish. And some are unclear. And that's where those, that ish kind of comes in, is where... For, I think there was like a, a robot arm or something emoji that just came out, a robot arm, and Microsoft just looked completely different, for example. That's just because that's their design language. So when you when it comes to a button, especially something that is going to be doing an action, when the user performing an action, that's why verbiage is preferred. If you use something like iconography, not only does it crowd the button, so you might be thinking, well, I'll use a verb and whatever. In some cases, sure, like, especially if it's kids interacting it, they like pictures, of course. But when it's, like, an adult user and they're allowing notifications, there's a reason why you don't just say, like, we'd like to allow notifications, okay, question mark? That's not verbiage. You click the button, allow notifications. Um, Basically, try to make the buttons, the text on the buttons, very clear. Icons are not clear. I'm going to say that again. Icons are not clear. So, make it so... Make it so that your verbiage lines up with what the action, because that's what a verb is, an action word, of what the user is doing. Um, you'll see this sometimes with, let's say you're going through a PowerPoint of sorts or like something with multiple pages. You might see someone just have the word next, but next isn't really verbiage. So you might see somebody write these days, view next page or go to next page or go to, and then like a little box with the number. That's like sort of verbiage. 
that is hit and miss. This is why I brought that example up. This is hit and miss because next and previous is such a normal computing term nowadays that that's sort of acceptable non-verbiage for doing an action, for example, if you want the person to go to the second page, but you don't want to have like some big thing like, please click next to, you know, like we're not going to write a whole thing. So it's hit and miss, but for the most part, you want short, concise, very clear verbiage alongside no icon, preferably, and colors like you were mentioning, Mike. If something is very severe or something is is expected, so a prime example would be sometimes in in Google Chrome, I, I've noticed if you go to install something uh, like a like a PWA or something like that, they, they change the uh, the design language all the time here and there. But I've noticed that if a little pop up shows up that you're allowing something or you're installing a, a an extension or something like that that shows up at the Chrome level, at the system level, not in the UI of the site, the the allow this thing to install or allow this thing certain permissions is like a blue button that says like allow. But then the other button is blue outlined, but it's like clear, essentially, like it's transparent. So if you have the dark theme on the, the background, just black, like the regular thing. And it says like, do not allow because the more, more people, obviously, because they engaged with this activity would want to allow the application, not say no. So that's why that's like, you know, that's available if you accidentally clicked it, but most people didn't accidentally click it. Yep, exactly. Uh, I think all the, all those points kind of just make make it important, like show how important call to actions are. Um, and a lot of time should be spent, like once you've put everything on a page and you kind of outlined it, a lot of time should be spent kind of manipulating your call to action where you want to display it. Should it be at the bottom? Should it be in the middle? Should it be whatever? Should it be in the nav bar? Should it be in multiple places? Some people put like, if you want people to sign up for your uh, newsletter, let's say, some people will put like a button in their nav bar at the top, sign up for newsletter right away. And then when you scroll down to the bottom, there's also a text box with sign up for your newsletter. So those things can be, you know, doubled. The more you have, the the better chance that people will see it and use it. On the other hand, don't overload the user. Like don't put sign up for your newsletter everywhere on the page. Like that's not going to work because you need to gradually tell the customer why they need to sign up for a newsletter and then allow them to do that. So... With that, uh, moving on to the next tip, this is tip number five, don't overload text blocks. Uh, from what I've seen, there's a lot of sites out there that have just way too much text and people tend to not read, like with read anything. Uh, if you've ever been in a corporate environment and you've sent emails, you know the fact that people just don't read emails. Well, when you're on a site and you have like three seconds of someone's attention, they're not going to read your content. Yeah, they're not going to read it. Like, that's just like, that's the reality of it. Unless they're super interested, they're not going to read, you know, 10 lines of, of content that you have about your, uh, about your, the greatest like nav bar that you've ever created, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, short, short of them wanted, clicking on your, your article to actually read it if you're in a news app, but you're correct. Exactly. Short of them actually reading a blog post, but I have something different for that. But when you're writing just regular content for you, for a regular page, what you want to do is you want to keep it to about two to three lines, um, succinct, really simple content. I've noticed a few websites will go to like a five line paragraph, uh, for a content. Uh, but that's really like, I looked at probably 15 to 20 different websites. I don't, one or two of them were five lines and they looked really good still. That's, that's why I'm mentioning them. But as soon as you go over five, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten lines, it doesn't look professional. It doesn't look clean. It looks, you're overloaded as a as a customer, as a as a client, as a person that's looking at the website. 
the shorter the the shorter the word like the lines the the better in my eyes uh, obviously you need to give your points so that's why you at least need a couple like you need to state what you're trying to state in each one um but try to keep it minimal also try to keep it consistent so let's say you have three columns and you have the you know your one column is like about us your second column is like our work your third column is contact us try to keep it so that all three columns have around the same amount so if one has three, maybe the other one has two and the other one has four, that's okay. But if one has like five and then the other one has one and the other one has two or three, you're, it, it, it doesn't, it's too asymmetric and it doesn't, again, it's not that clean look that you want in your website. Now, having said that for blog posts or news articles, it's kind of a different story. Like you can't really make every paragraph or every, block of text five lines it's just not possible when you're trying to convey a point or you're trying to tell the news or you're trying to guide someone uh, but what you can do is you can break up your paragraphs with spacing and that kind of at least the walls of text that you see are a little bit too daunting for a lot of people so the more spacing the more white space that you have in your in your paragraph or the more white space you have in your article the easier it will be to read everything and the easier for your customer to kind of go through and separate what they want to read and what they don't want to read as well. Because sometimes people will kind of blaze over some paragraphs and some paragraphs they'll want to do. Whereas if you have a block of text, it's kind of really hard to do that. Now, next point here is uh, something that was really weird for me, actually. Like this is something that I continually saw in and from multiple different sources. Uh, but apparently the, the the standard size for a body, the standard font size for body text is 16 pixels with 1.5 line height. And that's like agreed upon by almost every, you know, designer, every web form, every website that I've read on. Everyone kind of agrees with that. Um, I'm just, it's just weird to me that everyone's agreed on one thing because people usually don't agree, but that's apparently it. So if you have body text and you're worried about, you know, is this text too small? Is this text too big? 16 pixels, 1.5 line height, you're good to go. Yeah, I, I agree with that one. Uh, we, I often use like 15 if I need to sort of squeeze in some text because it's close enough that it's not going to be like super bad for UX reading and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Never really bothered with the line height though. Uh, yeah, apparently line height is a pretty big thing. Like uh, from what I've been reading, everyone's like, oh, if it's, you know, if if there's a bunch of a block of text with like really narrow line height, it makes it harder to read. I know that line attention. height is particularly important when you have sort of fancy, fancy-ish font. For example, if you add serifs, to your font and you have more than one line serifs really muddle the uh the line height if you will because they're little sticking out pieces you know so mm -hmm. then you really need to have that one and a half i'd say for sure um one of the things i would say for line height and font size and that type of thing is honestly just make it so that if you write up something, if you're writing up some content or you're, you know, make putting text on a page, whatever you're doing, if there's if there's text involved, write it all up, put it all on the page, and come back later. Come sleep on it. Come back later and don't go into the editor mode or whatever you're using. Just go and try to read it. And if it's a pain to read, and I mean read it on your phone, on a tablet or or at the very least resize your browser around. If it's hard to read on any of those, you need to adjust the font size and or the line height, possibly the font type, depending on what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that, that's good advice. But yeah, again, standard size apparently is 16 pixels font, 1.5 line height for body text. It's a little bit different for headings. Uh, apparently headings 
you want the line height to be smaller so that the headings kind of if you have a long heading it can actually you know correlate to each other i don't know that's, why but that's uh, that makes sense because the problem with a, with a heading is that it already has a huge real estate, huge bit of real estate. So let's just hypothetically say it's 75 pixels, depending on whatever. So it's a font size of 75 pixels. If you have a font size of 75 pixels and uh, a a line height, let's just say of 100, that like a line height of 100 is a big freaking line height to begin with. And so what happens is, is if your title is set to, because normally it's set via the like viewport like a like a dynamic uh unit but let's say it's it's at a fixed a fixed 75 pixels font size when it wraps on mobile or when it wraps on a smaller screen size that 100 of that 100 line height really shows like it looks like you just accidentally put padding and it looks like you're it looks like you're in comp- compatibility mode it looks like you just made your site compatible with that smaller screen it doesn't look like it was made to actually be that way cool yeah that's good insight there uh and with that being said let's move on to the next tip here which is consistent spacing um and i think this one really triggers a lot of people from what i've read like i read a bunch of twitter threads i read a bunch of blog posts a lot of people for some reason i mean it makes sense i guess especially with uh the spatial and artistic type they get really triggered if a site does not have consistent spacing and what i mean by that is let's say you have a block of text and some images below it. If your block of text has, you know, you know, 15 pixel margins on each side, and then your image below has 10 pixel margins, that that throws people off. They don't like it. Um, I'm not one of those people. I again, I'm not a design type, so I don't see some of the things that I'm going to be telling you. Uh, but I think with enough people that have talked about it, I think it is important to mention. So what people say is try to keep your margins the same across your entire site so if you're using 15 pixel uh margins for your text then use 15 pixel margins for all your images use it for the text below the images etc etc if you're using you know 10 pixel padding for your uh content blocks use 10 pixel padding for all your content blocks not just one and then if you have you know space in between one content block and another content block make sure that it's even across board so all your content blocks have the same spacing all your headings have the same space spacing between your body types. All your body types have the same spacing with the images, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing that people have mentioned is that what you want to do is you don't want to just choose random numbers. So if you, you know, let's say you choose like one, one of your margins will be six pixels. And then maybe if you need a larger margin, because sometimes like depending on your content, you might need one. Um, you'll choose like 10 Apparently, that's not the right way to go about it. It's better to choose multiples of the same number. So if you choose six pixels for your padding, maybe choose 12 pixels for your margin, et cetera, et cetera. Like go and then maybe like if it's 12 pixels, maybe go up to 24 if you need more stuff like that. So make sure you're choosing div- divisibles or mar- or, or uh, standard deviations of that number, whatever one you choose as your, as your base. I think that applies to font size as well. So you want to choose like that's why EMs and REMs are so important because they are just deviations of the same number. One thing I'd like to mention too with the spacing is I find that the uh, the sort of conflict or the if you're if you're not a person that follows any sort of these sort of rules 
and you, you know, put together a page that has a lot of font and stuff like that. And like a lot of things that are spaced out, a lot of elements all over the place. Um, one of the things I will say is that naturally, at least to me, even if you don't know these rules, cause I don't really keep these in mind when I'm working. I just kind of like get everything together and make it look good. But at the end of the day, usually it's within a pixel or two or right dead on of these multiples, like you're saying. Um, one of the things though is, so I, I've been using Webflow quite a bit recently and these editors, Webflow included and other ones as well, because you're in an editor mode, you get these element selectors. Like you click on an element, there's this border around it and everything else. It really gives you a skewed look, a skewed opinion of what you're looking at. And so one of the, one of the things that I always do is I'll put together my page. I know I just get it done, get it all together. Like I've mentioned several times. And then I go in and I actually go into incognito mode and I will look at that page as a user. And I will also again, sleep on it and come back and look at it again. And what I'll actually do is I'll pretend like I am interested or whatever. So for example, I'm not a foodie, but if you and I were, if you and I, Mike had a foodie client, they were making a food site. I know just because that, just because of user research and such that these foodies are going to be looking at this site on their phone, for example. So I then I'll make the design on Monday, sleep on it Tuesday morning or whatever. I will check it like a foodie on my phone, not in a phone emulator. None of that. I take away all of that editor editor or dev tool thing. And I look at it in the user experience and that, spacing and those little things will show themselves you'll be like whoa why does it look like that's like one letter off like it's you know it looks like there's an invisible letter there why is it shifted why is this padding so big when i turn my phone landscape or whatever that the like that test at the end and like this can't be this can't be like beaten not beaten in more into people's heads i think is that test that ux test where you pretend and you put yourself in the user's shoes is so important because it makes the page look like it was designed and just pushed to actually iterated upon. If you have your final design completed, however many iterations you are in and everything, you need to do that final user test. I would say a day or two after you kind of have settled with that project because you are going to kind of give yourself excuses on, oh, like that's only like a pixel off. Who cares? It's only this off. Who cares? Yes, users are not going to be looking at your pixel counts, but with you, you need to look at it on the device, on the screens that the users are actually using because you yourself will notice, whoa, why is this so close to the edge? Like, why is this one line doing this? Oh, it's because the content was super long and late at night when I was putting, you know, this word in and this one word was super long and I don't have word wrap in properly, right? I just gave it up as like, oh, I just have word wrap on. It'll handle it because I'm working on it, right? I'm still working on it, but you need to do like need to do that check. We have a major, uh, not a major magazine, but we have like a digital magazine that we work with and that design looked really great way it was, right? It was approved and everything, but going back through it and doing a UX check led to like 10 or 15 changes that just brought it to another level. I'm not saying it's like the Picasso of digital magazines, but it absolutely brought that thing to a whole new level just because of those little tweaks, because it looks like we went in and did those little tweaks even to the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. That professionalism is everything that you want 
in your site, especially when, again, when you're not designing it from scratch, when you're not a designer by trade, but you want, you want to, you want to, like a customer to not know that. That's the main thing. Like you want a customer viewing your page to not know that you're not, you're not artistic or you're not a designer. So that's the whole point of this entire list is like trying to help you and trying to forge something that will look professional, that will look clean, that will look amazing to, to your clients. So with that, moving on, uh, proper typography can really bring a design together. This is something that probably I struggle with the most out of all of these tips because I have no idea what proper, like, I don't know, I can't tell when, a, you know, two fonts are together and they're perfectly merged or whatever. Like, I don't know what that is, but I have relied on tools to help me and they, they seem to have worked. So font pairings. So when you have multiple fonts on a page, you can do that to accentuate different heading styles, different uh, different design styles. A lot of a lot of designers do use this this technique. And to do that, what I do is I go on to a million. There's a million different tools out there, but Google Fonts has its own. You choose a font in Google Fonts that you like, and there's a pairings tab that will literally give you a list of, of fonts that go well with that font. That's as easy as that, and that helps a lot. So. Instead of using the basic font that you have with the page, you want to choose a font that you like that visually appeals to you or visually appeals to the style that you're going for. Sometimes those two don't intersect. Uh, and then choose if you want a second font to maybe, you know, spice up your headings a little bit or spice up your hero or whatever, uh, you choose that second font from the compatible fonts that Google Fonts will give you. And I'll link that again in the web design resources in, seg uh, in segment two. Um, but it's just... It's cool that there's tons of design. Like, you don't need to know this. You don't need to know that, you know, sans serif goes with sans whatever, like uh, the, the Google stuff. Like, you don't need to know that, So which is good. The other thing is, is you want to make sure that uh, typography has the proper sizing and contrast, especially when in terms of headings. So when you have a heading, you want to make sure that it stands out like a heading. And there's multiple ways you can do that. One of the ways is just making the text bigger. That's important. That is that is definitely a part of the heading. The other ways you can do that is with different um, different bold levels. So maybe you want to make it like a little bit more bold than it already is. Another way you can do it is with colors or contrast. So if you want a heading to stand out a little bit more than the text, the body text, what you do is you make the heading a little bit darker gray and you make the, the body text a little bit lighter gray. And then therefore that contrast, again, is what leads people to look at the heading first and then go into the body. So next here, uh, tip number nine, we're getting to the end, is proper navigation layout. And this one's really big and really important because not only is it a UI thing, it's also a UX thing. And it's one of the most important parts of your website. Like if, if people go into your website, even if it doesn't have like quote unquote traditional navigation, like a lot of sites now just have a big hero image on the front and then that's it. And then they scroll and that's their navigation. That is still part of the navigation process. And that's still the, the, the web designer trying to lead a person through the navigation path that they want you to take. So that's what your navigation is doing. You want to, whatever, whatever type of navigation you have, top nav, side nav, no nav, it's important to present the element that you want the person to go to next 
some way on the screen to make it easier for them to go there. So if it's, if it, again, if it's that hero header, usually they'll put like a little arrow on the bottom, little, little half arrow on the bottom to know that there's something else to go down there. And a lot of people will click on that arrow or just scroll once and you control the scroll a little bit so that they go to the next section. That's helping the user navigate the site the way it's intended to be navigated. If it is a traditional navigation style, maybe you have some navigate like about us, contact us, whatever. Something I like to do uh, and something that I've looked, I've seen done many times before is, again, use contrast, use different styles to highlight the things that you want your user to go to the most. For instance, if you're doing a business card website, the big thing on a business card website is you want them to be able to contact them. So in the navigation, you can put the phone number and you can also highlight a little bit the contact us button, maybe make it stand out from the other about and all those buttons, make it stand out a little bit because as soon as the the person gets to the website and looks at the site and they see contact us stand out because it's like in green or red compared to the other site, they know that that's what, they, they, that's what they're supposed to be doing and they'll take that into context when they're viewing the site. That's very, that's, and, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say it's very important too with at the at the top part is to not to not bury things too much. So obviously drop downs on nav items are very important uh, because sometimes you just can't have a hundred options on your site's top bar, but you need you know more than five that would fit across, for example. But it's also important to note that sometimes a user's path through a website it won't be homepage to specific page. So you can mitigate or remove some of those nav items in those dropdowns because you should minimize those as well to most critical. So those items can be moved into different pages. So for example, if someone was going to be looking up a two-factor authentication guide, for example, on how to how do I sign up for two-factor authentication on this particular service, they might click on a two-factor authentication page. And then they'll click on the guide that they need. So, oh, how do I set this up on my watch? How do I set this up on my phone? They'll click from there. You don't need that watch and that phone option, those pages in the nav, nav bar. The nav items, including drop down, should be limited to critical things that users will want to reach at a, uh, like at a moment's notice from any page. Yeah. Uh, exactly. That's the point. That's the whole point of the nav. You want to make sure that again, it's not nest. You don't want to nest a million different options. Hundred percent agree with that. Um, you want to keep it as simple as you possibly can, but also able to access everything that the user will need to access for on a glance from a glance. And the same nav bar per page. Uh, don't don't have it so that if they show up to, if they show up, if let's say you have three options: home, contact, and about us. If you click on about us, of course, you can have the about us be highlighted so they know where they are on the on the page. But don't have it so that when you click on about us, uh, the contact button isn't there and it's only there when you go to the home page. That's that's lunacy. Don't do that. Yeah, that'll confuse the user more than anything. That's not going to help anyone. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, with that being said, let's move on to the last tip here. And in my opinion, one of the most important ones, at least for me. Don't be afraid to take inspiration from tried and true designs or designs that look professional to you. So a lot of my research when I'm doing a new project or when I'm helping with the UX of a project or anything like that is literally to look at competition, to look at award-winning designs, to look at new stuff that's just coming out, to go on Twitter and you know search design challenges, stuff like that. I spend a lot of time doing that before I settle on anything that I want to kind of emulate or settle any combination of stuff that I want to emulate. But most of my design process, quote unquote, is taking what's already works from other sites and then 
putting a little, a little bit of my own twist, branding and stuff like that into it and putting that on a page as fast as I possibly can. So then I can start that iterative process. So with that, there's plenty of ways to get inspired. I mean, you can just, if, if you're looking at a competitor site, that's one of the easiest ways. So if you're building a site for a body shop and you want to, you know, make sure that they stand out over other body shops or at least blend in and like they don't look unprofessional, go to your, go to their closest competition and see what their sites are like. And then go to like 15 other websites that are body shops and see what the best one is. Like in your opinion, what's the best one and how can you make it better? Right. Or just at least how you can match it if you're not really like in the design process. But that's a really big portion. And I know some people are afraid because they're like, Oh, I don't want to copy. It's not, you're not copying. You're not, you know, copying their code, copy pasting and all their CSS. You know, you're, you're already making something that's been, that's been tried and tested and you're putting the same brand, like you're putting different branding, you're changing different elements. It's not copying. It's the same as, um, you know, using the same blog format as a regular blog, like everyone has the same, the same format, you know, a big hero image, and then a bunch of a bunch of headings and with headings and text, that's the same thing. It's just the the style that's working at that current time, you don't want to deviate too, too much from it, unless you're like, you know, an extreme design eccentric, and you know how to challenge the audience to be able to get the content, which I am not, I am not good at that. That's why I always try to stick to tried and true designs with the twists that I can think of to make, to differentiate and to kind of lead the customer again to the final outcome that you want, whether that be contact us, whether that be sign up for a newsletter, whether that be purchase a product. So with that being said, uh, I think I'll move on to segment number two, and this is going to be a quick segment. I'm just going to list some, some web design resources, and it's mostly for you guys to go into our show notes and check them out for yourself um, because it's going to help you. That's, that's the main thing about it. So there's a color palette generator. I've already mentioned it, but it's coolers.co, C-O-O-L-O-R-S.co. Then for inspiration, I go to a site called awards.com, and that's awards with three W's, so A-W-W-W-A-R-D-S.com. They have like, you know, they constantly give out awards to the most innovative designs out there, so that's a great way to start. Uh, There's tons and tons of different awards as well there. For fonts, I do Google fonts, just fonts.google.com. Uh, there's plenty of other fonts stuff like you can, it, you don't have to go with Google, but try to go with, with a font that every browser would have. That's a big thing for me is if I'm choosing a font, I want to make sure that it's compatible with everything because I don't want, you know, someone on edge to be seeing my content in some weird font that is not supported because, you know what I mean? So I, I want consistency across browsing experiences that I'm supporting. I'm not supporting Internet Explorer for the most part. I don't care what they see as long as they can read it. And essentially, that's all that matters to me. There's also a gradient generator. I haven't talked about gradients, but a lot of, you know, a lot of interesting design principles use gradients. And I personally can't do gradients in my head. So I just go to a gradient generator. The one that I use is CSSgradient.io. I think I think everyone uh, uses, uses some sort of C- C- uh, CSS gradient generator because... It's so I don't know. Maybe some maybe some people can actually make them up on the spot. <laughs> they probably can, but I wonder if it's if this is just like because I I constantly reiterate it based on what's on top of it. Like I'll be like, oh, yeah. it's too dark now, can't read, so I gotta like you know keep keep reiterating right on the spot. Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's much easier to just use a like a generator and see exactly what you're seeing. 
exactly what you're going to get. Um, and then I have a general purpose list. This is a list that I found recently. Uh, it's by Undesign. So if you go to undesign.learn.uno, I've never heard of UNO as a domain, but whatever. Um, game for, try it out. Uh, it, is it a board game? Yeah, it is a board game. Uno is a board game a for game, sure, but <laughs> this is definitely not nothing related to the Uno card game. Uh, but yeah, check it out. Check it again. In, it's all going to be in the show notes. You can take, take it out, but this undesigned one has like a million different tools in it. So any, everything that I mentioned here is from this list, uh, or it's actually built into this list. I didn't actually get it from the list. I got it from different things, but they are included. And then they have a million different other tools to help you animate. Like they have stuff for animations. They have stuff for different kinds of generators. They have code snippets, logo, like they have a million different things. And I'm, we're not sponsored by them, by the way. <laughs> In any way, even though it sounded like it for a second. Uh, other than that, uh, that that's about it for me. Again, I hope it it was valuable for the people out there that aren't true designers that are a little bit afraid of the design aspect. Like you shouldn't be afraid of it. That's my main point in this whole conversation. Just try it. Like Matt said, get something on the page and iterate. Use some very basic design principles to make sure it looks professional. And then again, like Matt said, Sleep on it, take it the next day and take a look at it like from a consumer level. Does it look professional to you? Then it probably looks professional to other people. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else to add, Matt, but we can move on to web news. The only other thing I was going to add actually uh, to that resources section there is one of the one of the critical things actually is to when you're putting together a design, whether or not you own the rights to a particular image. So I would obviously if you're actually using the image in production, use a, an image you have the rights to. But if you're just using it for your own test purposes or own list, own learning purposes, uh, for on your own computer, I would suggest grabbing an accurate and an accurate image that would actually be used on the site. Having a bunch of placeholders does throw off design a lot, and having something like all placeholders in a store, an online store, can really mess up what the actual site looks like because you don't know whether your client, if you're building a client site on a store, they might take all of their pictures in black and white. And then you like for all their product photography is stylized in black and white. And then all your design language is all buggered up. So try to get as accurate, if not the actual images that will be used in there, including if you don't have the rights to them, only if you're using them yourself. I don't want to tell people to steal people's work and go and publish it. But if I desperately, for example, need to show off a car dealership, I'll just take a picture right from like the Chevy site just for my own purposes to make sure it looks nice. And then I'll give it to the client with a placeholder, not the actual image I took, because obviously I don't want to do that. But just it really helps make it so that you can see like, hey, this is going to look good with a car picture in my example for, you know, and that's it. Placeholders just don't do it justice use what you can and if you have to provide the images to your client ensure you have the right license and rights to it of course yeah uh on just to counter that a little bit uh i would provide the client with your as long as it's a locked link with the non-placeholder images in there as much as you possibly can so even if you've took a taken a picture off chrysler's site let's say um what i would do is i would just send them the image the 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 website with the image maybe i would put a watermark on the image saying placeholder just so the client knows that that is a placeholder oh yes yeah, if you if you were ever to share it then everyone else would know it's a placeholder as well and you shouldn't have shared it so at least you've you've kind of you know protected yourself in that way but i don't think it's a big deal if only your client sees a copyrighted image 
as long as they know that that's not the image they can use. Yeah, because it's not public and it's not going out to like they're exactly. not selling that picture or something ridiculous. You no. Know? So yeah, you're not generating an income from that picture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like there's many different reasons why it's okay. Might even give them inspiration. I mean, to be honest, maybe they'll be like, "Whoa, exactly. one of you will take pictures of my cars from that angle or something." Exactly. So sometimes you have to be creative in the way that you're presenting to your clients. Different clients like different things. Like we've had many situations where people don't understand what a placeholder is. So like you give them a placeholder of like if you're if you're doing a car site and all of a sudden you send them a picture of like, you know, a butterfly instead of a car and they're just extremely confused even though you've multiple <laughs> yeah, times said that that's a, a placeholder. Times, yeah. yeah, like that's a placeholder. Obviously there will be a car there, but they're like why is there a butterfly there? It doesn't make any sense. We've had, we've anyway. had people confused with We'll have like a gray background, white text, and it just says like 200 by 400. And they're like, what's this? I thought this was supposed to be a car. It's like, well, you know, that's the resolution. There's supposed to be a car there. And I don't have any pictures of your cars. So this is what I built. Well, this isn't a car site now. Well, it certainly isn't yeah. a placeholder site. Like, come on, guys. Like, <laughs> Maybe it is a placeholder site. Who knows? <laughs> it's ridiculous. So <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah, we've had that happen many times. So that's why I, any sort of creative solution to that problem you can think of, try to do it. Uh, and protect yourself as much as you can from actually getting copyright striked or anything like that. But yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, on to uh, on to web news. Uh, this week, it's going to be called, or it is called, Your Essentials. So it's a little bit topical here. I'll dive in, and then we'll, of course, converse. So uh, food, water, and shelter are, of course, the, basic, the basics in terms of human survival. And as a society, we've advanced beyond just these basic things and tacked on additional essentials beyond like those those three survival things so for example education is considered a necessity or an essential now so what is uh, and isn't an essential is obviously a hot topic right now with all the lockdowns and other procedures and precautions that people are taking with COVID-19 running rampant so I want to discuss our quote-unquote personal essentials and what I mean by that is that everyone has different essentials in their business or everyday personal lives and we're often shamed for having those essentials. So, for example, maybe it's, maybe shamed is too harsh of a word, but it's the only one I could think of. And the example is, like, you spent, like, that much on X thing? We always have a friend that'll be like, you spent that much? Like, I always wait for a sale, or I always wait two years. Like, you're wasting money, that type of thing. So you're kind of shamed, if you will, when you are when you consider that thing that you bought an essential. So, for example, uh, Digital Dynasty Design doesn't need an office, uh, but it, so it's not an essential for us, but it might be an essential for other businesses. And whereas we went, might say something along those shaming lines like, whoa, that's a waste of money, that other business might really need that office for whatever reason for their procedure. And personally, myself, a TV is essential for me, but for others it isn't. And many people would complain about that the fact that I have an HD TV, for example, and whoa, you spent a thousand dollars or whatever. So I want to just kind of touch on this because it's something that frequently comes up in my life where people are constantly being like, whoa, you spent money on this? Like, what the hell? Meanwhile, to me, it's like, well, that was essential to me. And then you kind of feel crappy about having purchased X thing. So I'll uh, kind of let you touch on that mike and then yeah yeah uh it's a good it, it it's a good topic especially with covid and all that going on um i think every everyone's different with their essentials i'm just trying to think like what would be essential to me but not essential to everyone else i mean for instance we record a podcast i do a lot of conference calling a microphone like a really nice microphone that's over a hundred dollars that's essential to me and my business personally like i wouldn't 
it would be ridiculous for me to have like a really shitty mic where someone would be like, why did you spend a hundred dollars when you can just use your, your webcams? Mic yeah. hundred percent like that. Yeah. Like it, it works just perfectly fine. Everyone would say like a lot of, a lot of people would say that. Um, but again, to produce a good podcast, to be able to have good audio for the podcast for people out there and to be able to sit on conference calls for a long time and sound professional, in my opinion, it is an essential thing to have for, for multiple reasons. Another thing that I have that might not be essential to everyone is a really nice monitor. Like I have a nice 27-inch monitor, high refresh rate. Um, it costs quite a lot of money, like even though I bought it used. And is, like, is it essential to everyone? No, absolutely not. But it is like, essential you to you. Be, but it's essential to me because I need – A, I need somewhat color accuracy. That's kind of important to me because I do do some design work. Uh, B, I need – Higher refresh rate does actually help my eyes. I have noticed a difference in how my eyes fatigue less. I'm constantly staring at a screen. It's a little bit bigger than a regular 24-inch monitor, so I have more real estate for all my code and stuff like that. That's important to me. And I do game in my pastime, and it has a higher refresh rate, higher resolution. That makes the gaming experience better. Like, in my opinion, the it's a combination. A lot of the times, it is a combination of things that make something essential rather than just one particular thing. Um, sometimes it is just one, though. Like you said, with the TV aspect, like I just want a nice. Like, is it a want or is it a need? I don't know. But if you have the means and you're not, you know, going into debt, and you're also budgeting correctly, there's nothing wrong with having something great that you can, like, you know, watch TV on or watch Netflix on and enjoy and it increases your enjoyment level because it's that much better uh, because that kind of stuff carries over into other parts, aspects of your life as well. So having a great TV will make you, you know, excited for the end of the day to be able to watch it. And then it'll, you know, have higher pleasure factor. And then once you're like, you know, once you're happy, you can fall asleep better, have a better night, go to work better the next day. It's like, it is a carryover effect. Whereas, if it's not important to you, sure. Like if you don't care what you're watching TV on, if it actually won't increase your happiness or it won't increase anything for you, like it will just – maybe it will make you angry because you spent so much money on something. Like some people are like that, right? Like some people are resentful of the fact that they have to spend money on something that they don't particularly need, quote unquote, or isn't essential to them. So they're actually it's actually lowering everything for them. In that case, sure, it's – absolutely not a good idea to do that because and you know the people that know they're out there but on the other hand those people probably like to fiddle around with tools or go to you know go to their shop and build a build a shed or whatever like and then they need their essentials are really nice tools even though really they could probably get away with medium tools or like crappy tools or renting tools whatever but they generally will have really nice tools or a really nice car or whatever so everyone has their needs everyone has their essentials it is, in my opinion, important to bring in budgeting into the aspect. So as essential as something may be, like maybe for me, it would be great and essential to have a helicopter. <laughs> no, but yeah, it could no, be. You're right. like, yeah, it, you're could, right. it could increase my happiness by a lot because I can fly to Toronto like for after 10, like in 10 minutes, be in Toronto and get some work done or whatever. Like it, it could generally make my life happier, but my budget does not afford a helicopter. Right. Yeah, yeah. So... That's an extreme example, but it could be the same for a TV. Like if we weren't making money and you already had a TV that was working, you probably wouldn't buy a TV. Yeah. Because you you can get by with what you have. So I think a lot of it comes down to budget. A lot of it comes down to future planning. A lot of, And then 
as and then you bring in your like what's essential or what what are your needs at this current time to you that's a really good layout i think because bringing budgeting into it is really important um you know going into debt for some things that are you know not the basics not food water and shelter are is not good right uh, if you really wanted to go to school someplace, but the payoff for whatever reason isn't going to be there, like you don't think it's going to be there and it's going to absolutely destroy you and your family's financial situation, then maybe you should be, you know, thinking of it, even though education is essential. Maybe you should be bringing your budget into into the case and choosing a different school that better fits your budget. Buying a different brand TV that you, a TV is essential to you. So buying a different brand TV that's cheaper might be what you need to do, for example. Those are, you know, that's really, that's very true. Um, I will say that, I will say that for me, for example, the like having the latest in gaming equipment is essential. So I already have money set aside for both of the new consoles coming out this year. Most people will wait a year or two, wait for a sale. I'm just going to go pre-order them and buy them. I already have the money aside. But I know for sure the instant I do that, I'm going to get some, I'm going to get an earful from some people be like, you already bought those? That's ridiculous. And there's no games and that's a waste of money and everything else. And it shames what you're doing and it ruins that enjoyment factor that you mentioned, Mike, is that sometimes I'm just like, well, maybe I shouldn't be, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. You know, it's just that little thought in the back of your head. Meanwhile, I've always mentioned to people, like I'm, I'm spending a lot of money on like, uh, what do you call them? Like, I guess luxury electronics if you will i got a smartwatch on stuff like that but it's all within budget like i'm pretty fiscally conservative i like i I hunker down on stuff i save put up quite a bit into savings and, and stuff like that and whatever else but i just i think i think my main my main motivation for this for this web news was really that sort of, sort of shame factor like for for example you don't and then you mentioned the the shed thing I don't know what your hobbies are, for example. Like one of the things that "quote unquote" humans will consider "quote unquote" essential, excuse me, is their is their main hobby. And so, whereas someone might attack me for having the latest Xbox when it comes out day one, that's fine. But what if they're like a boat enthusiast and they had to put a single light bulb on their boat and it cost two grand, some special light bulb or something, and they had to get it installed and they had to get the wiring all done up. Whereas I find myself shaming people to an extent, like, you know, the same way everyone else does, like, whoa, you spend so much money on that. I'm trying to almost self-correct at this point where I'm just like, oh, okay, cool. Because realistically, like it, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what, what it is, but it's like, I don't know whether you have this mic where, for example, I played the game, the video game Fallout 76. Fallout 76 felt like crap to me the entire time I played it until recently felt like crap to me and I'm a huge follow fan because there's glitches and stuff like that but it was accentuated by the fact that people were complaining about it and so I just felt like well I might as well not enjoy this like I shouldn't enjoy this and every time someone brought it up they'd be like well how's your phone like this is like the exact thing you do how's your phone 36 bud and I'd be like well I'm just a loser that bought the special edition no worries bud like it's just a gar-. and then I would say something like oh it's a garbage game or something just to get them like let's get through the let's get through your your little spiel like you know let's get the next person in here what was your fool you know that's really what i hate i think um so one thing okay one thing i want to mention is i 
I kind of want to differentiate essential from from like luxury, but then luxury luxury for me having a smartwatch is essential. But, but it's also if I couldn't afford it, I could absolutely live and get used to not having that, it within a month. That's what I'm saying. So I think there's something in between, if that makes sense. I think there's an in between category that we have to categorize because I think essential literally means, and what most people will will assume it means is, you know, house, food, car to get to work if you need it. Yeah. Uh, and. Basically, food, food like shelter, a be- water, a bed to sleep in. which is yeah, which is food, because yeah, of like, your work, like exactly. come in because like, of work. Th- that's the essential thing. Like that's the essential. That's the essential category. And then there's another category where it's like you can, you're fiscally responsible, and you have hobbies, and this is the stuff that you can do with your fiscal, like you know, to have fun. Because I think having fun is essential, but like you can definitely you know survive without it unless you have mental problems. You could you could argue that sometimes fi- like not uh, treating your your like uh entertainment needs could be considered a possibility to go down a bad path and you know uh potentially lose your life because of it so maybe that aspect like you need to be be sane um so i don't know i i'm just trying to think of a way to categorize the essential stuff like for living yeah. and then the stuff that we're talking about which is like I don't think I, the quote unquote luxury. I don't think is a really well good way to put it because it's not like you're going out and buying the most expensive. You know, you like playing computer games, but you're not going out and spending ten thousand dollars on a computer. No, I that yeah, I'm being I'm being fiscally responsible and choosing you're a laptop that fits, fits with, the budget, it, for example. Yeah, you're fitting the budget, which isn't, I, in my opinion, is not luxury. Like if I was if I was thinking luxury, I would be like, okay, well, your phone is probably the only luxury thing that you own oh yeah like i buy i, I go and buy the, the, the best the best samsung phone at the time that yeah I want. it's the top of the line phone at the time yeah like you can't get you essentially can't get anything more expensive or better unless you're going with like gold engraved stuff but that's that's a totally different level of yeah. luxury but other than that for the most part your laptop like yes it's an expensive laptop but it it made sense like there was a reason for for that expensive like there's a lot of reasons to put into it. Your TV, you know what I mean? Like it's not the biggest, best TV in the history of TVs at the time. It's not the best TV you could have no, bought. Definitely like it's not. a decent TV, but it's not the best. You also use your stuff for a long time. This TV is 10 years old. Like over, t- I think it's over 10 years old now. Th- that's what I'm saying. Like, and the, the computer, we used our computers for six years. Six, like you're, you're, you're still using the same computer, even though you have the laptop for like seven or eight years. Uh, well, I, I have so, both now. I have both right beside each other. They're yeah. both in use. <laughs> but, but you're yeah, right. Both, like I'm still using this big yeah. boy. Like, so that's what, that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to categorize it. Maybe the audience can help us categorize like what's between luxury and essential. Is it just, you know, hobby needs? Is it like, how do you categorize? Well, that? one of the things is, is it could be is utility. So, one of the things that humans, quote unquote, need as a utility is water. Another one is electricity. Another one that's sort of on the table right now, being or being tabled or being thought of as essential is internet, right? Whereas essentially, if you suddenly took my internet and my running water and everything else away, I can still go down to a creek, assuming it's not polluted, and get water. You know, for example, I could still do that without having the water being pumped through a pipe into my home. I could, t- I guess, yeah. you know, but it's still pretty essential. Th- that's exactly it. Is like it's like where is the line here? Because society has yeah. like sort of like you you need a yeah. you need a you said you need a job. A lot of job applications are done online. A job means you can get your food, shelter, water. So then now you're like okay, like 
now the internet's starting to get in there and you need electricity to run that computer to run that router. So then there's that, you know, there's that aspect. One of the things I recently talked about on my other podcast was one of the members of that podcast was buying a condo and they had stated that their budget was like completely out of control. I talked to you about this, Mike, completely out of control. And I talked about it on the podcast as well. And one of the things that he was saying was, and I'm paraphrasing from months ago, just remembering is that like, he couldn't afford like this, 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 this. And he's like, what would, and I said, well, you're going to have to cut back. And one of the scenarios I laid out was if you can't afford the lights, the furniture and the the stuff, but you need that place to live, you need that condo, my lifestyle would be, and this is not a joke, would be, I would have a single chair, probably used. I would not turn on the lights. I would literally would not purchase the light bulbs and I would go into the, and I would go to the, go to work, go to the library, download my Netflix video movies because I wouldn't have internet. I would go home. And I would use the the flashlight on my phone as my light, and I would sit in my chair, and I would watch the Netflix that I downloaded. And he said, that's ridiculous. I was like, is it ridiculous? If that's what your means provide, then that's what your means provide. And so, like, I could do that. <laughs> now, there is luxury in there, right? There's the Netflix, there's the phone. But I'm yeah. offloading all this stuff that the house doubly provides, like the, the phone provides light and the house does too. I could take that away and now I save some money on lights. I don't have internet, so there's that saved. So now I only have Netflix and and my phone, right? So, and I'm not, and I could technically get rid of data because I can go to the library and use their internet. Their free Wi-Fi. Yeah. And he thought, you know, that was ridiculous. And again, I'm paraphrasing from what memory, but to me, it's like, <laughs> that's where I fell like, if that's where my fiscal, uh, like, income fell to, and I need that condo, then I guess that's what I'm doing. And I could live. I'd still have running water. I just would have to find the bathroom with a flash phone, with a flashlight on my phone. Hopefully I have a bed, yeah. like an old bed. Like, but, but like, that's, that, that's true, though. Like, when people come, come up with, with budgets that are like, I can't afford this, 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 this. I'm like, okay, then get rid of it. And that, and then they, and then usually they'll defend it. Like, well, I need that. This is why I brought that point up. I need that. Well, do you need it though? Because if you can't afford it, it kind of sounds like you are affording it. You just don't want to buy it. And that touches on the other piece that you talked about, how you may buy something and be pissed that you have to buy it. Like I'm annoyed that I have to renew my license plate, for example. Right. Essentially mm -hmm. I could drive my car around, but not legally. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I got to pay yeah, for I don't that. Know. It's, it's a tough one. So what I don't understand is like a lot of people and a lot of people do this is they buy stuff that's way out of their budget. So they go through their budget and they're like, okay, this is what I can't afford or I can't afford. Like maybe they can't afford to buy anything. That's all, that's also a possibility, but they still want to buy something. So they go way out of their budget. They get into a massive amount of debt and then they complain and, but they don't change their they lifestyle. Don't change, yeah. They don't change at all. They don't change their lifestyle. They just get even more debt. So they just, they're just in the situation where they're just putting themselves in a massive hole. And that happens so often. Like so, so often, like it, it, it's crazy. Like I, I moved out this year. I looked at my budget and I was like, okay, this is what I can afford comfortably. That's my, that was my main thing. Like I didn't want to be on the edge. I didn't want any, like I, I needed to be able to afford it comfortably. I needed to, there was like a few, a few variations. So I needed to be able to afford it myself. Uh, I do have, a, I'm, I live with my wife, obviously. I need to be able to afford it if like, let's say I lose my job. My wife still has her job. And I need to be able to afford it in the, in the opposite direction. So if she loses her job, I stop my job. 
like at the time we both had our jobs, everything was fine. Everything is great and stuff like that. Um, and I need to be able to afford it. Even if we both lose our jobs, I need to be able to have enough savings to be able to pay for it because I don't want to be evicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took all that into consideration. I found my budget. I found a place and that's it. And then there's no stress. I didn't, we don't really have to change our lifestyle too much because of that consideration. Like we looked at places that were more expensive, but then we're like, okay, let's, so if we take this place, then we can't go out, you know, this day, this day, this day of the week. We can't, uh, like we, we, we broke it down. We're like, okay, we can't buy anything on Amazon for like a year. We can't, can't, like we can only buy half the furniture right now. <laughs> like stuff like that. Is that, is that, is that sense. what you did? Or you, yeah, that's, oh, what, that's we did. what you did. No, what I'm saying is like we we broke it down. And we're like, okay, so we can't afford this place. Oh, that, that's how you we were looking. Betting place. places. That's how we were looking. Yeah. Okay. So now we like when we landed on this place, we could afford to keep our lifestyle the way it is. Like lower our lower a couple of small things, but we were going to lower them anyway, and keep our lifestyle the way it is, and still be able to afford it. Still put money into savings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like it's maybe some people don't have the luxury of that, but then again, um. That's a different discussion. Like that's that means that you have to change something in your life drastically. Like you have to find a new path for making money. Like sometimes, sometimes if, there are people in trouble. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna exactly, pit, like yeah. downplay the people that are legitimately trying to like legitimately scraping by with bare minimum stuff. Like they have the cheapest phone, the cheapest car, the cheapest, 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 and they're still yeah. in trouble. There's absolutely people out there like that, and that's really freaking bad. And I don't know how yeah. else to save them other than to get more money. And how do you do that these days? You know, question mark, well, now, big these one. Day, these days is a huge question mark. Like, I don't know. I don't want to get into the COVID discussion right no, now. Yeah. But, like, it's too – that's, that's yeah, it's a scary thought. I mean, admittedly, at least the government's people, at least here are helping and stuff like that. Governments in Canada are helping. But there's, like um, – like, I'm from Russia and looking back at the Russian economy and, like, what's going on there, that's, that's a scary – it's I haven't read about that, like, but it's it's bad. Yeah, like it's thankfully none of our family is affected by it for for the most part, so we're not too too worried. But it still sucks majorly. Um, but yeah, I think I don't know. I what's the capstone on this? Like, what's the what's the is there an outcome to this? Is there a way to wrap it up? Like, I don't know what wrap it up in a nice. I, th- that, tight that's bundle. the good question. Is it's just like. I don't want it to sound like I'm whining about how people come to me and say I I don't like this thing that you bought and I bought it because I'm being I'm essential but or like I find it essential but at the same time at the same time we've kind of through this discussion blurred the lines of like what is essential what is essential uh, societally like how utilities are becoming essential so the prices are regulated here in Canada and stuff like that so it's like where is you're right. Like, what is the capstone here? Like, it's almost like our conversation like grew the topic. Don't don't judge other people's purchases. Maybe maybe that's it. Although maybe judge yeah. their budget if they complain. <laughs> like, there are people that well, I know that are like, I can't yeah. afford to do this, and then, so like my response is then okay, so then don't do it, and then they get pissed off. It's like, yeah. well, I'm not gonna give you the money for it. Yeah, you Obviously. know, like I understand the on the other podcast. With the other guy, like, freaking out about his budget. He's going into a new place for the first time and stuff like that. Of course he's freaking out a bit. I'm not going to judge him for that. But there are people that have, let's say, been living in a place like like that or another condo or a house or, like, living somewhere, right? Where they're paying rent or they're paying mortgage or something. And they're, like, completely out of their budget. And it's like, well, why did you, like, why didn't you look at this? Like, for example, me. Okay, maybe this will be the capstone-ish. I don't really know. For me, like, or let's compare your, your and my car. You have a nicer car than me, period. You have a nicer car than me, but it's much newer. 
And you're also doing a lease, which costs more money. Me, even like when I need a new vehicle, not doing it. I'm going to go to the used car lot, buy something that's 10 grand or less and walk out. And that's the end of it. Because that's part of my budgeting. I want a car that is safe and legal to drive that gets me around with, with minimal gas price. Full stop, end of story, that's it. I don't care. <laughs> like, I, I'm driving around with a crack in my dash. I don't care. Like, that's, like, <laughs> that is the reality. Like, as long yeah. as it drives and is, like, comfortable enough and is legal to drive and is safe enough, that is, like, le- within the legal safety requirements, that is it. Yeah. So, f- for me, um, with the car thing, just to quickly touch on that, if I, if it was just me, I would probably lean towards your style of car purchase. Right. Where I would just try to get a car that's reliable and, you know, gets me from point A to point B safely. But because my, with my wife, because we're sharing a car, uh, she's a new driver. I wanted all the safety features. Right. That was my big thing is like, I wanted as many safety features, as many current safety features as I could get for the budget that I had. That was it. Like that was, that was all I wanted. So all the lane detection, all this like automatic stopping for you, the back, the rear camera, um, auto drive, like anything I could pack into that budget, I was going to pack into that budget because I want as safe an experience for a new driver as I possibly can. That's, that was my thing. And it's been great. Like she likes, like she loves the car. Like she hasn't had to use any of the safety features. Thankfully, she's a great driver. But, um, regardless, that was my like, you know, I, I don't want to worry about that. Uh, that was why, that was why I chose to spend a little bit more money on the car than, Maybe I would have if I if like I wouldn't have if I was just alone, but I fully understand you. Like, like I I just don't want to spend money on that. I want to have money for my yeah. for my game consoles, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. what's weird? What's what's funny is you bring up as an aside. You bring up safety features. My car doesn't have uh, ABS, so yeah. I remember mm-hmm. somebody was telling me they were freaking out because their ABS had broken or was malfunctioning, and I was like, well just just drive and they're like how how do i stop in the skid i'm like just compensate like to me i actually struggle when abs kicks in because i'm like you like i'm fighting it because i'm used to being the abs like me and like oh let's yeah. skidding let's let's you know i'm, I'm mm-hmm. used to <laughs> so just that's no, it's weird but like like again though that that's priorities is like i didn't call you nuts about buying your car i may have like said that that's way too expensive a few times to you but i certainly mm-hmm. didn't say i certainly didn't try to like shame you for it as part of like yeah. my self correction as we're talking, but like at the same time, mm-hmm. you're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, shame. shame. Yeah, yeah, that's. I guess that's a good capstone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's there's a there's a, a glimpse into Mike and my different car lifestyles. Yep. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear the audience's perspective on this and to what 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 do they consider essential? What do they consider, um, you know what do they consider almost a great, I don't know what I want to say. It's like, what do they consider essential and why they consider it essential? Like I'm on a desk from Zellers right now. Some people like a, like a real nice wood top desk. I'm on a, you know, a desk from Zellers. Like, I don't care. Like it works for me. That's it. It's over. And Zellers isn't even around anymore. Put it that way. So like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't care. So I'd like to hear what you consider essential in your personal life and whatever on our, uh, on our Twitter or on our Instagram, shoot us a message or whatever, or tweet at us. Cause I, I'd love to know, like what, what is going on in, in your head when you, when you, when you deal with this type of thing and are you being unnecessarily shamed as I just did to Mike about your, uh, your purchases. Uh, but, um, 
let's run the old conclusion here, I think. So let's, uh, let, or let's thank you for listening. Let's all thank everybody. Let's all give each other a pat on the, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of applause, please. But thank you for listening, uh, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML, all the things that's on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter. That's via at, at HTML everything. We're on Medium and we're on GitHub and we're also on that Patreon, patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. Uh, many thanks to our $3 a year patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. Find him at youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. Find him at localpathcomputing.com. Craig, a.k.a. Cosworth. Ryan, ba- Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Selfmade Web Designer. Find him at selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from The Web Hacker. Find him at thewebhacker.com. And DL Ford from dlford.io. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you're listening to this on, and we are signing off. Yeah.